take your Bibles. Hopefully they're the ones that you've brought with you, the ones that are worn from your many days of study. If not, there are some in the chair backs in front of you. You can use those. Join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you're using an ESV or a chairback Bible, you'll find it on page 981. We began looking at chapter 3 last week together. We considered what we find to be really an introductory statement to the next few statements that Paul is going to make. Some very heavy statements, poignant statements, statements that honestly they resonate with my heart. I hope they resonate with your heart. I know many people say uh, they have life verses. I sometimes joke and say, well, my life verse is found from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. Uh, but realistically, one of the, the verses that, that overwhelms me every time I come to it, and one of the ones that resonates in my heart where I go, you know, I, this is the attitude I would like to have. Lord, work this in me, what Paul professes in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Lord, allow that to dictate my life, that I might consider you the most important, the greatest treasure, that I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you, and that that might permeate my life and drive my life. In verse 3 of chapter 3, when we looked at this last week, we got the introductory statement here. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul was, was making this statement because many had infiltrated the church and men, many had infiltrated not only the church at Philippi, but many of the other fledgling churches out there and began to impress upon them the need to follow the law of Moses. And he has a lot to say about that in Galatians. We mentioned a few verses in Galatians last week. We'll mention a few today. But one of the things that Paul wants us to know is that if anyone, as he would say to the Galatians, comes to you, whether it be another person or an angel, and they teach a gospel that I have not imparted to you, that, the, that Christ himself imparted to me, let them be accursed. Let that not be said of us, that we might somehow place some confidence in the flesh and find ourselves accursed because that's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ it is opposite to that see basing our salvation upon anything other than grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone can result in the dangerous and damning doctrine of legalism we talked a bit about it Defining legalists last week as plusers. Plusers. It's Jesus plus something equals salvation, but that is not the equation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. These are the kinds of people that have been trying to deceive the Philippians and many other saints from the true gospel. Jesus plus something. Jesus plus. You fill in the blank. Because I've heard about everything that you could use to fill in the blank. And maybe you have too. But usually it's religious activity. Some sort of religious activity will then get you a step up or earn you merit. And Paul is saying nothing damns faster 
than thinking that way. We see in this statement that those who have been saved worship by the Spirit of God. He's the down payment. He's the seal. He's the seal to our hearts. And they glory not in themselves, but in Christ, whereby we put no more confidence in our own actions or our perceived merit to earn us justification before the Lord, to be acceptable to Him and be pronounced as worthy before God. It's only in Christ. For the next few verses, Paul is going to confess that he once boasted in these things, in these things that he inherited and in these things that he was able to accomplish in the flesh. He believed that these things would justify him before the Lord. But as he makes clear here, there, he doesn't feel that way any longer. And there's no such thing that you can, there's no such thing as you can do it, salvation. There's no such thing as you've done it, salvation. For those that have this mindset, maybe it's you this morning, that you've struggled with this sort of thing your entire life. And, and that's understandable. Because it is something that, that we must kill. We must mortify that part of our flesh that thinks that there's any good in us. But for those of us that have had that mindset or we have struggled with that mindset, Paul here in the next few sentences, he, he's going to do us a great favor. He's going to blow the doors off of this dangerous doctrine. But he does so from someone, from, from a place where he's someone who's been there, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And he's going to share that t-shirt with us. Let us learn from the word this day. Repent where necessary, but continue to trust in the Lord for our full salvation. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to be with us as we look at these few verses this morning. Father, as we come to your word, we know that it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we look, look to you. We look to your words here that they might pierce us, that they might cut away um, the foreskin of our hearts, that it might be done away with, that we might be um, reborn or be assured that we are reborn and that you're sanctifying us. We thank you for the seal of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work in us, the people who are so often defined. I know I am so often defined, Lord, as, as a few steps forward and many more steps back in this journey. And so we just ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would purify us God, even today as we think about the, uh, the purity of this gospel, that we are saved by you and you alone, that God, it might give us confidence no longer in the flesh, but confidence that the good work you began in us, you will see to completion. Father, we thank you for the many privileges that we have, and this is one, that we can gather ourselves together. We can look at your word and ask that you speak, O oh Lord, that that your church may hear, and that we might turn and give you praise for who you are and for what you've done. And we pray this in your precious name, Jesus, the only name by which we can be saved. Amen. Amen. Let's pick up in the beginning from sentence, uh, from the beginning of the sentence, excuse me, in verse 3. So we're going to look at verse 3, we'll read down through verse 4. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, hyphen, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Well, it's quite the interesting statement, Paul. At the beginning of this sentence, Paul has included himself using the first person plural. He says, we are the circumcision. You, you saints at Philippi, you, anyone who's been affected by the Holy Spirit and hearing the gospel and has turned in repentance and faith towards God, you are the circumcision. You worship by the Spirit of God. You glory in Jesus, and you are to put no confidence in the flesh. And then it seems, without even taking a breath, he connects himself to the heart of the struggle that they find themselves in by saying, I have reason also for confidence in the flesh. He says, you, you've done a lot of good things, and you might want to take that as confidence that somehow that's going to earn merit before the Lord. Well, if you think you've done something, let me tell you about what, all, all the things that, that I have done, these inherited privileges and these earned privileges as well. And so he's about to make this point, most assuredly making a point about confidence in the flesh. So what is flesh? We talked about it a bit just for a moment last week. But I want to remind you of the terminology. Flesh is the term that's used throughout Scripture to define the desperate and dead state we were in from the time of physical birth to the time of spiritual rebirth. And then that continues on because we are still, by nature... In this flesh, though we have been born again to a new and a living hope, and though the Holy Spirit of the living God resides in us, we still struggle with the old person because we've not been glorified. See, that's why we sing, Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned bought for me, and and one day, praise God, he will finish the work and I will be glorified. I won't have to worry about the struggle that I have in this flesh. But until then, I will work, as Paul has prescribed in Romans, to mortify that flesh, to not feed the flesh, but instead to put all confidence in Christ. And so we walk this walk and we walk this struggle. But the Lord has told us, I'll see you through. I'll see you through. I've put a down payment and a deposit within you that is the Holy Spirit, and I will not deny myself. And so we can take great confidence in that. But the flesh is that which wars against the Spirit. And the things of the Spirit are not discern, discerned by the flesh, he would tell the Corinthians, which is why we need the sovereign grace of God to break through that and speak to a dead heart and bring it to life in order that we might respond with grace, in, to that grace with faith. Paul helps us wrap our minds around the effects of the flesh in, in, the, in these few verses. Um, it's not just gross immorality. See, many of us hear flesh and we might think, well, it's the immoral part of us. It's the, the part that gives in to the fleshly desires that are within us. But it's not just gross immorality. See, that's an easy thing to diagnose. When we do something that we go gross immorality, we can point at it and go gross immorality. But it's the subtle things, the subtle lies that our flesh hooks onto and buys into. And one of which that can be the most dangerous is self-confidence. 
Now, I'm not talking about self, like self-esteem. Uh, I'm talking about like this self-righteous confidence before the Lord that somehow by our action and effort or by our pedigree, we somehow get a step ahead and, and earn favor before God. That somehow God is going to look at it and go, wow, you're really impressive. Come, come and, and, and share in this fellowship with me. But that comes from a faulty view of anthropology, knowing who we are, knowing who man is. And that's the reason why most of these letters that Paul writes, he starts with that. He goes, listen, here's the problem. And from Romans 1 through 3, he shows us the depravity of man and how no one does good. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No, not one. No one can do anything right on his own. So praise God that he gives an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's outside of ourselves because it is our only hope. Well, the flesh, seeing the flesh for what it is, carnal man, it's not just man at his worst. It's man at his best. It's man at his best as well, neither of which is acceptable before a thrice holy God. Only perfection is acceptable before him in his holiness. Paul's saying, look, if you struggle with this, thinking you have confidence in the flesh, you're about to get in here with the champ, buddy, because I was that person as well. If anyone has the credentials or had the credentials to say that they were righteous before God, it was me. And then he goes into that. So in verse 5, he begins to list out a few things for us that many scholars have deemed his profit and loss list. Um, maybe if we're honest, we could come up with a list of, this, uh, of these things on our own. We could make up our own list. Maybe we could put it like this. What are some of the things that we've relied on in the past to think that we could have confidence before God? And we write that down. Now, perhaps we should also list the things that have had the most effect taking our hearts away from the gospel as well, that we might be aware of those going forward. But that's what we're witnessing here. Paul is doing that. He's saying, these are the things that I once thought somehow earned me favor before God. He starts with perceived natural inherent benefits. He begins with the very thing he just referred to a moment ago, and he says this, circumcised on the eighth day. That's where he starts. Circumcised on the eighth day. We've already discussed circumcision a bit. In Galatians, he says circumcision amounts to nothing. But in other contexts, we see him say the exact opposite. So which is it, Paul? Romans 3, verse 1. He says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Hmm. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God came to them and called them and chose them, not because they were greater or stronger than any other nation, but because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he told them that time and time again. It wasn't because they had done something to be acceptable by God. It was just truly by God's grace that he came to them and did these things. But he gave them the word of God. 
And he gave them the law and he gave them the teachings. In Romans 9, Paul says this, these same things again. He reiterates, he says, to the Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And he says, those people are my people. And I took great pride in it. He claimed circumcision and national identity as a great advantage for him, one that he had no uh, part in. It, it was just he was born into. God had prescribed through Moses to give the sign of physical national covenant of the Lord upon birth, from birth eight days for every male child. And this was supposed to point forward to the day and the prophets talk about this circumcision of the flesh really did account for nothing other than the fact that it showed that they were a part of the covenant and that their hearts they were to be looking for the day that the word of God would pierce their hearts and circumcise their hearts and that they might be born again because those in the old testament were saved by faith as well by the power of God Paul, like most other Jews in that day, didn't put emphasis on that. He didn't put emphasis on the in, internal and what God was doing in the spiritual man, but instead they were always looking to the external workings of the flesh. One pastor verifies, he says, perhaps you could also, uh, perhaps you also, excuse me, had the right beginning. Maybe you were brought up, uh, brought to church from the time you were born. Maybe you were sprinkled as an infant. Maybe you were dedicated to the Lord in a special church service. Whatever might have happened to you in your childhood, none of these things can give you right standing before God. That's the very thing Paul is talking about. And he continues. He says, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, but I was one of the people of Israel. He's saying, look, I'm purebred. I'm purebred. Look at my pedigree. I'm good. That has to, I thought that that meant something before God. I was born into the nation of God's special chosen people, a great nation that was given the covenants and the law and the prophets. Or we might be able to say, I was born to a Christian family. But nobody is grandfathered into this thing. Because not everyone of Israel is Israel. There is a spiritual people that God has called from spiritual death to spiritual life, and he has placed his seal upon them, and it is a covenant that he mediates by his own precious blood. And if he mediates that covenant, there's no way for that covenant to be unmediated. So, look at what else he says. I'm, a, per, I'm, a, I'm a, a man of Israel. I'm not an Ishmaelite. I'm not an Edomite. I'm not a convert. I'm an Israelite through and through. And he goes on. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, why would he throw that in there? What's so special about the tribe of Benjamin? They sure did have a blemish upon them. If you'll read the last couple of chapters of Judges, you'll see they had quite the blemish in their history. Or 
vile things that took place, and they were almost wiped off the face of the earth. The other tribes came against them and killed almost every man of Benjamin, save, I believe, about 300. So what does he mean? Why does he call this uh, one of his benefits? Well, after that, they, they were an honored tribe because they remained loyal to David. After all the things that went, went on with Saul, it looked like they were going to fight against him because there was some fighting between Benjamin and Judah. You can find that in 2 Samuel. There's this fighting between Benjamin and Judah, and it looks like they're going to be enemies, and there's going to continually be war there. But they come to an agreement that they're going to follow after David, and they're going to be loyal to him because um, of the actions of Saul's sons. And so there's that. And so also beyond that, when the tribes separated, when the kingdom was divided, they didn't go with the ten tribes of the north, which became known as Israel, but they stayed with Judah in the south, and they worshipped God properly the way that they should have. And they didn't go after uh, the high places in Israel and Dan and Beersheba and places like that, but they stayed loyal to the Lord in that place. And so he says, look... Benjamin is very honored, and I was a part of that tribe, a faithful tribe, a tribe that um, stayed faithful to the Lord even in times where others were not. He continues, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, or in other words, my parents were both Hebrews. His parents were Hebrews. We're not sure how Paul obtained his Roman citizenship. He doesn't go into depth on that. That was quite an honor in those days. Uh, It came from either being wealthy or doing something for the Romans that would allow you those things. If you were a Jew, you didn't just get to become a Roman. Um, But for whatever reason, he he was a Roman citizen. But he says, I'm not talking about that. That becomes important later. But what I'm talking to you about is that if there was any confidence before the flesh, my parent, I was born into a Hebrew family. And, and, And I'm talking like... As Hebrew as can be, from morning to night, we did what was required of us. And then he goes on. So those were inherited benefits. He says, these are things I gained simply by uh, being born. But here's some things that I believed to have been earned. I believed that there were things that I did that earned me favor and gave me confidence in the flesh to come before God and say, I'm good, right? Look at the end of verse 5. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees get a really bad rep. And they should because of the way that they ended up. But the way that they began was really good. They, They were... A group of men that decided to get together in the intertestamental period and they saw all the things that were going on. They saw, to use some modern language, they saw the cultural drift that was taking place among their own people. And they said, we need to get things right. We need to get back to what really matters. We need to get back to the word of God. We need to get back to following the law. And so they did. And they became masters of it. But what they allowed that that zealousness for God's word and his law to do was to permeate their heart and to change them slowly over time, to change them into legalists. That they, by keeping the law, could be right with God. Not And neglecting all the other voices that said, you must be circumcised of heart. Abraham, by faith, was justified. 
But no, they, they, they believed that by doing everything that God had told them to, they would be able to be okay in the end. And by being a Pharisee, the strictest of all sects of Judaism, Paul would have been revered. He would have been a respected religious man. After all, they even threw their coats down at his feet at the stoning of Stephen as he was there overseeing it all. He would have had a wealth of knowledge concerning the Scripture. He would have been able to recite it, probably uh, not only from being a Hebrew of Hebrews, able to sing the book of Leviticus around age six, but then being a part of the sect of the Pharisees, likely had to show that he had all of the Torah memorized and to do so multiple times. And he also knew that many rabbis' teachings, that's how they taught in those days. You've heard Rabbi Joseph ben Jetty say blah, 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 and they're able just to spit it right out. Now, here's the thing. Because we need to consider this from a standpoint of what does this mean for us? How does this apply to us? You may know a lot of scripture. You may be able to take your pet preachers and say, yeah, this is what so-and-so says. But here's the thing. Let this be a lesson to us. It doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge we have. It doesn't matter how many pet preachers we can quote if that's something that we think is going to help our case before a holy God, we're in great danger because we're showing ourselves to be putting confidence in the flesh and, and to be uh, making for ourselves this pile of self-righteous rags. All of this leads to the next description here. As for zeal, he says, a persecutor of the church. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church. So those that began to follow the way, those that many of the Pharisees began to go, you know, you're not doing what the Word of God says, you're not keeping the law, those folks, he knew that they were going to be trouble. And so in his zealousness, he began to persecute the church. And it's another warning for us that if we begin to think that that we are the interpreters of Scripture and that we get to be the judge of what we're to do and what we're not to do. And that in our sincerity can sometimes start off from a good place, but in our sincerity, think that we know what's right to do. We can take that far beyond where we should and it can be at the expense of other saints. So we have to be careful not to consider ourselves better or to see something that someone else is doing and that, that, that's one of those areas and go, you know, that, that's not right or good and so I should whatever. Now there are things that we certainly judge. We are to be discerning. But with this legalism, we think that by doing these things you earn favor and if you're not doing these things you don't have favor. But God... God has loved us, and in his love, there's nothing that we can do to make him love us less. But there's also nothing we can do to make us be loved anymore. That's not the way he works. And from in summation, he talks about 
this persecution, going from town to town to imprison Christians. In summation, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So you, you put me up against the law from the outside. I looked perfect. Anyone's perspective, including Paul's at the time, he, th- he had so deceived himself, he thought, I'm good. There's no sin in me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the most righteous person around in his group. And if the statement ended there, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, Paul, had, Paul would have been headed for a Christless eternity in hell. And that's where he was headed as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And Christ, in his sovereign will, meets him along the way, blinds his eyes, and allows him to experience him in a saving way. Then verse 7. Verse 7, look at this. This is very important. Let your eyes see it. Verse 7. But we could stop there for a moment. It's one of those beautiful contrasting conjunctions that we've seen time and time again, as Doug made mention of when we were looking in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 there as well. But God, these contrasting conjunctions that come in, in these spots in our lives where there's no hope for us, we are headed for hell, and we're getting there as quickly as possible because half of what's fueling us is our own self-righteousness. That's definitely what was going on for Paul. And here again, we notice this contrasting conjunction that any saint experiences. Praise God for these contrasting conjunctions, the ones in our own testimony, that we can go, but I'm not who I was. Praise God, I'm not who I was. That's what he's doing here. And it was in this state, the Lord came to him. What grace. It wasn't until after Paul had an experience with Christ that he was able to look back sober-mindedly when he was making this list, look at his life and realize that all of these were fleshly acts of self-righteousness before the Lord, and they weren't to his advantage, but they were to his loss. And so in verse 7, he begins to move everything that he had in his profit or advantage list over to a list that says loss or disadvantage. It's very interesting the way that the Spirit of God can move on us to do that very thing in our own lives. So in verse 7 he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain. Gain is plural here in the original language. Gain is merits. Whatever things I thought merited favor with God. Whatever things I thought made me righteous before God. Whatever things that I could have scrounged up and thrown into the uh, tokens that I could have thrown into the scale that would have helped me balance it in the end, those things I came to the realization weren't anything at all. They were of my own imagination. When Paul's spiritual eyes were opened by the power of Christ, he searches his balance book again, right? And at the bottom line where he wrote blameless after seeing Christ, he scrapes it out and says, loss, bankrupt. I have nothing before the Lord. 
I have nothing there. I place confidence in flesh, but realize that God doesn't accept that kind of currency. As Jesus explained to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're the teacher of all Israel and you don't know these things? That's a problem. You've been to church your entire life and maybe you've not heard these things. That's a problem, but we're going to correct that today. It is only in Christ. If you've got a list of things that you think are advantages to you before the Lord, shred it and then burn it and don't make another list. And if you do, just write Jesus. Just write Jesus because he is our only hope. Verse 8 intensifies what he just said in verse 7. He says, just in case you think this is all talk, I want to I I explain to you what is more? What is more? Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. After having experienced Christ and the grace and the mercy there to save a religious person as he, thinking he was like God, that self-righteous religious ivory tower came crumbling down when he experienced the life-shaking power of the resurrected Lord. And maybe some of you have the same testimony. Making clear, Paul's making clear, I'm holding on to nothing. He says, all is loss. All things are loss. My question might be, is that your attitude today? Or are there still things you're holding on to? When you wonder, when you search your heart to see if you be in the faith, which is what is prescribed for us in Corinthians, search yourself. Do you go back to a religious activity? Do you go back to your profit and loss list? You say, well, in the end, God's merciful. I'm a good person. Everything will work out in the end. Is that what you do? Paul says, if anybody could have done that, it was me. And then I came face to face with the gospel. And I realized that don't work. God doesn't accept that currency. So is this your attitude today? That you've counted all things a loss compared to knowing Christ. Are there still things you hold on to? Paul meant what he was saying. I don't hold on to anything from before. I cannot. I've experienced him who is beyond all worth. In in the language of Lewis, he would say, um, it, it it were if I were an infant making mud pies, a toddler making mud pies in a slum, not knowing what it was like to have a vacation by the sea. But then seeing what it was like to have a vacation by the sea and saying, no, I'm good here. That's what we were doing. That's what we may be doing. Knowing, gnosko, experiencing Christ far surpasses anything that we can muster in and of ourselves. Thank God for the grace that allows us to have our eyes open to this and to experience the riches of His glorious grace, to know Christ, to know Christ, as Paul would say, 
is to walk away from the world, to walk away from the world of self-righteous religion and into the arms of God to know Christ and be known by Him as He will put here in a moment, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but only by faith in Him. And this experience isn't some mystical, fantastical experience. And here's why. Because this is real life. And God is a God of real life. And Jesus took on flesh and lived a real life. And then he was resurrected to real life. And so to experience Christ and know his gospel is to know, I can't do it. Christ has done it. And he is alive today. Means we, have ex- we, we get to have relationship with a real, living person. That's why it's not mystical. That's why it's not fantastical. Put, put your other little weird word in there. Fantastical is the one that I just came up with, I guess. But, but it's not like that. It is a real encounter with the living God who, is, who has given you everything he has to give in order that you might be saved through faith. And that not of yourself, that you have something to boast in. You don't. It is a gift of God. I'm going to end with this. It's an account given by James Montgomery Boyce. He shares that he was living in Switzerland once, and there was a typhoid epidemic that had broken out in a beautiful little village at the foot of the Matterhorn, the largest mountain in the Swiss Alps, called Zermatt. It was a long time until they found the reason why typhoid was running rampant in this little town. But a water main that passed from the mountains, going through town, passing through some farmland, had a crack in it. And the runoff with the animal feces mixed in had run into the water main and contaminated um, that pipe. The typhoid, he says, had bred there and the pipe was contaminated. Now, a person who did not understand the nature of the disease might say, but you cannot have any better water than the water that comes from the mountains. That is beautiful water. It comes from melting glaciers. Yes, but the pipe that carried it was contaminated by typhoid. And consequently, any water that went through it was contaminated also. So too, with human righteousness, we do good things. But all of our good deeds, even the best of them, are contaminated by sin. We may be fashioned in the image of God. But sin has so permeated us. There is no good. And there is no one good. No, not one. We must have a substitute. And praise God, he provides that for us as well. Jesus Christ would come. Second person of the Godhead, clothed himself as mortal man, being made like us in every way, yet without sin, all in order to bring many sons to glory. He lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling all of God's commands, the very thing that we are unable to do even when we're at our best. He did it. And then, He died a death in order to pay a ransom and to appease the wrath of Almighty God in our place. 
And without that substitute, without Christ coming and, and being placed in between us, all of the righteous anger of God falls upon us. But Christ bore it in his body. And by faith, if we exercise faith in him, all of that righteousness, which was not our own, is now placed upon us, imputed into us, not infused. It doesn't come alongside as if somehow our good works and his righteousness make us into some super person because we are not able to move. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and instead God comes and imputes to us a righteousness not our own by faith and makes us alive together with him. By grace we are saved. And it's grace realized. It's sufficient through faith and not of ourselves. And I hope that through the Spirit's work we can see Jesus as our infinite treasure, our only hope. That we would give up everything in order that we might gain him. And when we see God for who he truly is, we won't think that we're getting ripped off in the deal. The world would like to tell us it's a ripoff. God says, trust me. Trust me. The riches of the glorious grace of Christ are yours and more by faith in him. And that's your invitation this morning. Lay your pride aside. Lay any confidence in the flesh that you have aside. And rightly place your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Oh, that we might echo the song that says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It is all we need.